And I get a whole lot of comments from folks saying, oh, I wish I had known that doing that was an option when I was younger. And I think, well, who told you it wasn't? Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 89 with Ariel McLaughlin. Ariel has lived off-grid in a tiny house in the Wyoming mountains for just about six years now, and she has a lot of firsthand experience on how to deal with things like heat and water and electricity when you don't have a reliable 365 days a year of sunshine. Ariel is really detailed and a generous guest who offers lots of inside looks at how she does different things in her tiny house. And she also does this on her wonderful YouTube channel. I had Ariel back on the show today. She was actually the second ever guest on the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast to kind of give us an update on tiny house living after six years and talk through some of the systems that I get the most questions about, namely living off-grid and heat. It's a really great conversation, so I hope you'll stick around to learn a lot from my guest, Ariel McLaughlin. But first, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the super helpful guidebook that I wrote five years ago to share all of the knowledge and decisions that I made to build my own tiny house, along with what I did right, what I did wrong, and how I would change things. The guidebook is now in its second edition. It's been completely rewritten and expanded to reflect how tiny houses are being built today. And it also includes several new tiny house stories from other tiny house dwellers. The guidebook has been expanded to include things like SIPs and metal framing and all the different kinds of insulations that are being used in tiny houses. And I seriously think this is the most helpful thing you can buy if you are thinking about living in a tiny house. If you go through the guidebook from start to finish, you will have a solid plan for all the systems and everything that's going to go into your tiny house. The second edition has been a long time in the making, and I'm really excited to share it with the world. To learn more, you can head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. All right. I am here with Ariel McLaughlin. Ariel has lived off-grid in a tiny house nestled into the western mountains of Wyoming, a little over 6,000 feet above sea level since 2014. She splits her own wood for heat, carries water by hand, uses a compost toilet, and attempts to grow as much of her own food as possible between the weather and the wildlife she's surrounded by. As a child, Ariel was fortunate enough to be able to spend much of her free time exploring and playing in the woods. Little has changed now that she's older. She moved into a place with bigger woods and still enjoys spending her time outside, hiking, backpacking, gardening, and photographing the natural world with Burley, a wonderful English shepherd who accompanies all of her adventures. She loves sharing what she's learned about living in a tiny house, being off-grid, living in a very cold climate, shoveling lots of snow, gardening, cooking, nutrition, backpacking, heating with wood, composting, wildlife, and more. Ariel McLaughlin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. It's great to talk again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. We were chatting before the before we started rolling, and you were episode number two. And that was quite a while ago. I'm not even sure what episode number this is going to be, but I know it's not number three. Yeah, this will, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it'll be in the high 80s or maybe 90. Um, nice. So it's been just about two years, more than two years. I think I've heard somewhere that most podcasts like don't get past five or six episodes or something like that. So yeah, that's true. I think, yeah, like most just give up because it is, it's a lot of work to put the show together, but it's, it's one of my favorite things. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. I enjoy listening. Well, good. We were actually also chatting during the, the pre-roll because, you know, in your bio, you mentioned that you love sharing what you've learned, and that is absolutely the truth. I mean, your YouTube channel really documents your daily and seasonal life in, in your tiny house. 
Um, what motivates you to, to keep sharing your journey when it seems like so many other people kind of stop sharing after they're done with their build? Um, I guess maybe the people are still interested. I kind of started, so I didn't build mine myself. Mine was built for me. Um, so I never had a build to document. That wasn't why I started. I kind of started because there was some issues with specifically living in a little house on wheels in a very, very cold spot that when I was trying to figure out how to do them, when I first moved in, I'm sure other people had done them, but I couldn't find anyone who had written down what they did or how they did or how it worked out. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to learn it the hard way, I may as well write it down. Cause I'd started with a blog years before I got into doing videos. I thought, well, surely two or three other people in the future are going to want to do this. So maybe they can at least, you know, benefit from my experience. And uh, it kind of grew far more than I ever dreamed. And people still have questions. I had one of my good friends when I started after like four blog posts or something like, yeah, that's never going to go anywhere. There's, you're going to have everything. I mean, it's a tiny house. Everything's going to be covered and no one will be interested anymore. And somehow, you know, heading into my sixth year and hundreds of blog posts and heading for 600 videos later, I still get questions every single day. So I guess I'll keep answering them. And it's, I guess it's one of the things that keeps me doing it is it's very encouraging when I do get a, a message or a comment or an email from somebody who says, hey, I'm building mine and that was really helpful or I'm trying to design mine and I couldn't find anyone else who answered this question or I'd never thought of that and thanks for saving me from making that mistake or whatever. So that's encouraging if it's actually helping someone somewhere to uh, keep doing it. Cool. One thing I've noticed in in my tiny house, which is also situated in in a cold northern climate, is that the extreme conditions test all the systems and stuff breaks when you least want it to, usually when it's it's well below zero. So I'm curious what and and, and I also try to reframe those things as like learning experiences. It's like the system didn't fail. I just learned how to improve the system. So I'm curious, what are some recent things that your tiny house systems have, have taught you? Um, well, for one, I'm sure you know this, but that's not, not unique to tiny houses. I do live in a super cold area and I live around a lot of very, very huge houses. The, the folks who own the property that I've been living on for years now, their house would hold, I did the math the other day, Something like, if I remember right, about 90 of my homes would fit inside theirs. So there's a lot of very big houses here, and they have the exact same thing happens. Everything that's going to go wrong or break or stop working happens when it's minus 30 degrees outside. It doesn't happen when it's 65 in the summer. That's just how things go. Um, recent things that have gone wrong here, I can't say I've had any recently, because I think I've been here enough years, I've kind of got all those things worked out in the first couple. That's awesome. I, so things that have gone wrong, but not recently would be, uh, my first year here, I first started out with just a built-in propane vented heater and it, uh, it requires electricity to ignite and run the fan. And that quit, of course, when it was a week that it was 30 below and I had the flu and I was on the couch throwing up and I had no heat and it was a weekend because these things always happen on a Friday night. And anyway, in the process of getting that fixed, I decided that was the end of me only having one heat source when I live somewhere this cold. Now I actually have three, which is overkill. I think two would be sufficient, but um, I have a wood stove now as my primary source of heat, which is wonderful and really can't break other than running out of wood. And I live in the middle of millions of acres of standing dead beetle killed pine. So that's not really an issue either. And I have a little backup propane heater that uh it's not vented but it does work without power should i have no power so heating issues now whatever happens i now have three different options to stay warm so that's no longer an issue the other thing related to being really cold that i had a problem with once is one time i had my drain freeze so my my sink drain goes outside and drains into um basically a rock pile, which is what I live on. I live in the Rocky Mountains, but onto a rock pile that goes down 25 plus feet that kind of, you know, filters the water, the gray water and, uh, and, you know, it feeds trees and so on. Um, I've never had a problem with that freezing except for 
when I was doing something that I hadn't thought about being stupid, um, taking frozen ice chunks. Uh, I had a cat at the time, and when they're a bowl would freeze, I would just dump the frozen you know, chunk into the sink and refill it with, with liquid water. And so the ice chunk would just sit in the sink and very slowly melt and drip really slowly down the drain. And so ice melt, of course, is not very warm water to start with. And dripping very slowly down the drain, one drop at a time as it melted, led to it freezing up on the bottom end of that drain. And again, of course, it was very, very cold. And that became a major project. I had to get a hook my generator to a heat tape, which is on the drain to, to melt it, to get it running again. I have never had a problem before since. I've just learned when it's really cold, don't leave ice melting in the sink. If you've washed your hands, even with room temperature water or done dishes with even mildly hot water and it all goes down at once, nothing ices up and it's just never been a problem. But I have learned do not leave ice cubes or chunks melting in the sink when it's cold. That's too funny. I've actually, I I froze my drains. Um, We were on kind of water restrictions and uh, so we saved some water in the sink for dishes overnight, which that the sink does not seal perfectly, you know, slow drip. Okay. And so same, same issue in the morning, there was about half as much water in the sink and it wouldn't go down because it had just dripped, dripped, dripped down and frozen. And as long as you're running more than a drip at a time, I assume yours hasn't frozen either. Same, same thing. I've, other than user error, I've never frozen the drain. The drains have never frozen other than from user error. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's the, the things in the years that have been here and they were back more toward the start that were fairly major inconveniences when they did go wrong. Um, but having worked those out, now I don't do those things anymore or I have other backups and so they're no longer an issue, thankfully. Is your water carry-in? It is, yes. I, uh, I live in a spot that's fairly far from a well. I live on the side of a mountain here in the Rocky Mountains. Drilling a well would possibly or possibly not produce water even if I wanted to do that. The closest well I know of is about a half mile from me, and it's about 300 feet deep, and it's um, and it hit cruddy water. Like you could irrigate stuff with it, but it's it's not water you'd want to use for drinking anyway. Plus, I'm not on my own land, so drilling a fifty, sixty thousand dollar well is just not logistically something that makes sense. So I I do live near a, a small creek that flows um, most of the year. In the winter, that's debatable, depending how cold it gets. It may may produce solid, but uh, all summer, I can use that for outside watering gardens and such, but my drinking water and everything in my house, I actually have a neighbor that lives up the road that has an excellent well, and I just drive there, fill up my water jugs, dump them into my tank, and then I have water. So that also helps with the freezing issue, because other than the very end of my drain pipe going outside, everything on my water system is internal, so there's no hose coming in or line coming in from a well or anything else that could freeze up unless my whole house were to get so cold inside that everything froze solid, the rest of my water system cannot freeze, which is helpful since I'm in a cold spot. And what do you use for a hot water heater or do you have a hot water heater? I do. I have a 10 gallon tanked propane heater, actually. I know a lot of people, especially in tiny houses, seem to be big fans of, or at least like the idea of um, the instant on-demand ones. Um, you probably know Christian and Alexis, they visited me with their tiny house at one point. I've had a few friends visit and that's always great when you have a small space, when your friends bring their own house, when they come to visit. Um, they had an on-demand heater and they were here. It was, it was spring, but it was still really cold. And they discovered something I hadn't actually thought about before, but with how cold the ground temperatures are here and how cold well water is here coming out of the ground, their um, on-demand heater was only able to produce lukewarm water while they were here. It was it was just such a big temperature differential. It was never able to give them hot water. So that uh, seeing getting to see their experience made me thankful that I do have a a tank water heater. So I do have very hot water when I want it. And I've never been able to measure specifically its propane use because it's the same line that goes to my stove, uh, my range, you know, for cooking and such. But I only fill my my propane tanks about every other year, so it's not a big um, not a big draw. So I've been wow. very happy. with Are that these setup. big propane tanks? Um, I have I have three hundred pound tanks. 
uh, I have a little one for backup in case of emergencies, but when it's really cold, the small ones don't tend to vaporize adequately. Yeah. So it's nice to have the hundred pounders. And if I, if I fill them, yeah, I usually only have to refill them about every other year. Yeah. The, the propane on demand hot water heaters are, they're great in theory. I, I had one at first. Um, I had a freeze up in my house two years ago and, you know, the inside of it froze and a bunch of various pieces of copper pipe exploded. And yeah, I, the issue with it is that because it, it's such a small little compact thing that sits right over its own vent is that in the winter it has to turn itself on every hour to keep itself from freezing. And so if you have any kind of power outage or propane outage, you have a very short window of time before that thing is going to freeze. Um, so when that did happen, I, I reevaluated and, and decided to go with an electric tank. Um, and it's seven gallons and it's, it's plenty for washing dishes and even, even a shower. Um, I would imagine if you are off grid that you have to minimize the electric appliances. So it's probably why you went with the propane. Yes, I, I do have some power here. I have a very small solar setup so I can plug in my laptop, charge a phone, occasionally turn a light on, though in the summer i'm so far north the daylight hours are longer than i want to be awake anyway and the uh in the winter i use a lot of oil lamps and and such but i do have a small amount of power but anything that's a big electricity users not not a good thing especially to rely on even though my power doesn't go down if the grid goes down here i've had a few things break with that over the years where a wire came apart and it was a few days before i could get a, a connector to replace something that had cracked or something like that so yeah all the things i really rely on especially like keeping warm since it's cold so much of the time i don't want to be dependent on electricity for that to work yeah so you mentioned that you have a generator how can you kind of describe that system and how how that connects in with your solar is this something that turns on automatically or is it something you have to run yourself and and how often do you run it in the winter um yes it is so there's multiple parts there mine is manual there are options to set up something like this that would turn on automatically i don't have that it's they're usually a little more larger more expensive uh and so on to do that so i just didn't so the way mine works is i have a battery bank uh, in the house, and it has two separate feeds that that charge the batteries. One is my solar panels, and they come through a charge controller that just makes sure they don't, you know, if it's really sunny, the batteries don't blow up from overcharging. And then from the other side comes the same thing: um, electricity generated by a a gasoline generator that also goes through a charge controller for the same reason. And in the summer, how often do I do it? It varies so much seasonally. In the summer, I never turn it on. In the spring and fall, I don't usually turn it on, but occasionally if you get, spring and fall here can be pretty snowy as well. If you get a long stretch of very gray or very snowy days with almost no sunlight, there can be a few times I turn it on. In the middle of winter, you know, the shortest days of the year, December and early January. Again, it varies a lot if we get sunny days, even with the shorter hours of daylight. I might have to start it once every five days or so just to kind of catch up the batteries because they're they're getting some charge every day, but they're getting a little behind. Um, and if we get one of the stretches of time where it just dumps feet of snow every day for days in a row, which means there's virtually no sunlight coming in, I might have to start it every two or three days for a little bit to catch it back up, but that's usually only for a short time. So... It's a bit complicated to answer because I can't say, oh, I start it once every 10 days through the year or something like that. But if you if you have a solar system and you can't just completely go without electricity when the sun is not shining, if you have anything that requires or relies on on having the power there, even if it's a small amount, um, you probably are going to have to have a generator or some way to back that up, especially if you live somewhere northerly and potentially snowy and cloudy i guess maybe if you live in the middle of a sunny desert near the equator maybe you can not have any backup yeah well this is a good reminder because i i hear this concern a lot from would-be tiny house dwellers 
you know, that they want to be off grid and they're really worried, like, is it going to be enough? Am I going to have enough batteries? Am I going to have enough panels? And adding a generator to your setup is not all that expensive and it's not a big deal. You know, like if you have to run the the generator every couple of days to top your batteries off, like so be it. Yeah. And if you, I mean, it depends if you, if you currently live in a very large or standard modern American house and almost everything is electrical powered and you are used to leaving every single electrical item plugged in and turned on or, you know, it snooze or sleep mode or whatever all the time, and you want to continue to live that way, you're going to need a very big setup. And that's where you get into these people who put $60,000 solar setups on the roofs of their houses and so on. That's not what I choose to do. I choose to use electricity for very, very limited things here. So it allows me to have a very tiny setup. And it was not expensive to put together. I have details and all that. It cost me about $3,500 for everything, batteries, panels, wiring, and that included the generator. And as you said, generate a small generator like that is not expensive. Mine's, depending on the sales at the moment, a little over $200. And, and it does a, an excellent job of being a, a backup for that. And because it's so small, it it pairs nicely with my small system, does not use a lot of uh, gasoline when it is running. And so it's just, for me, it's a good solution, but I'm not running an electric heater and an electric air conditioner and a big fridge and a TV and a hair dryer and all of that. And I couldn't with my system. So that's something to be aware of. If you want to do all that, you're going to need a different setup than what I have. Absolutely. No, no toasters. No, I never like toast anyway. I like my bread warm and fresh out of the oven, not crunchy and dry. I mean, when it's fresh out of the oven, it almost is toast, but it's like the freshest, nicest toast. Uh, but toast, I've always thought, makes bread taste stale. I know most of the world loves toast, but it, to me, it's always been, why do you want your bread dried out like it's been sitting on the counter for a ridiculous amount of time? I want mine fresh. I don't know. I'm a toast lover here. We're going to have to <laughs> agree to disagree. That's good. You you have enough power, I hope, to run your toaster then. Well, I, I don't have a toaster in the tiny house. I, oh. I have a small oven that we use to toast. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause, so I, I built my house. I wanted to be off-grid ready. So I don't... Uh-huh. I, although over the years, I've been slowly replacing propane appliances with electric ones because those seem... Propane seems to be the place where I have the most trouble. Um, in terms I listened of re- to your your talk on that and thought that was interesting. That that's all the most of the issues you've had. Yeah, and it it gets a little bit into the weeds with, and I'll I'll post a link to that episode so we don't have to spend like fifteen minutes going through it. But my propane detection system, when it lost power, it would shut off propane, and so when I got a power outage, I would also lose propane, which was problematic for the heat and for the hot water heater. Yeah, my propane detection system just screams really annoyingly at me if something is leaking. And so then I have to manually do something about it, but it doesn't shut it off. It doesn't shut it off. I was kind of thinking like, what if I'm not home and there's a leak? I would want the system to shut off. Um, And knock wood, that hasn't happened. I've I've since removed that system. So I'm actually now on a, like what you have, just one that yells at you. (laughs) So you heat your house with wood. Um, Does that mean that you're just home all the time? Like, what do you do when you when you have to leave for more than a few hours? Um, So my house is super well insulated and my wood stove. It's one of the most common questions I get because people see photos or videos of how cold and snowy it is here. And I get lots and lots of questions. Are you warm enough? We hope you're staying cozy. My wood stove is a little one, no longer manufactured, but there's there's similar ones out there today. Um, that's like 12 inches square on the outside. That means it holds a seven and a half inch log inside. So that's the size of kindling for uh, most stoves. It's even smaller than kindling for many wood stoves, but it produces an incredible amount of heat. And because my house is only 160-ish square feet, 
and well insulated. Usually when the wood stove's going, I have two or three windows open, at least a crack just to ventilate fresh air. And um, and staying warm is not a problem. That's true even when it's well below freezing or well below zero outside. So if I need to go somewhere or even go to bed overnight, because that's another question I get, oh, well, that must suck that you got to get up in the middle of the night all the time to stock your you know, wood in your stove. I don't ever. I am way too lazy to do that. I like sleeping uninterrupted. So I just get it, the house a little hot before I go to bed. Um, I have both a partial wall and then kind of a curtain across my loft to keep the heat out of the loft because I do prefer sleeping coal and of course heat rises. So I get the downstairs good and um, hot, you know, bring the temperature up 85 degrees or something like that, stack the wood stove full, go to bed. And even when it's, you know, below zero, I'll wake up and the house will be 55 or something in the morning and there may be a coal left or, or it may be out cold depending how long you sleep. Um, and that's fine. I just relight the stove and, you know, and go back about what I do. So I can easily leave for a day and not have a problem with the wood heat. If I need to be gone for a week or something, that would become an issue. And that's where having both of my propane backup heaters actually comes into play. If I'm just going to be gone for a day or two, I might just turn on my little uh, radiant propane one just on low if I know it's going to be really cold. I know that'll just keep things from freezing up in here. And then the built-in one, my first one that actually requires electricity to run as well, is on a thermostat. So if it would get below 50 degrees, that would kick on as well. So I know my house isn't going to freeze up while I'm gone. But that is important to think about, especially with a small wood stove. If you live in a place where it's just chilly some nights in the winter and you might want it every now and then, maybe not a big deal. But if you live somewhere it's cold enough that everything could freeze solid um, and burst your pipes, kill your house plants, ruin your food in the house, you know, things that, that you would care about losing having some backup should you need to be gone for more than a day or so is, I would say, an important thing to have. Definitely. Redundancy is is good if you can fit them into a tiny house, but each one of those heaters, particularly built-in ones and wood stoves, do require clearance and their own space, own wall space. They do. And the wood stove, of course, takes more space than anything else because it gets very hot and so you have to have sufficient clearance around it my little uh, uh backup one it, that's not vented is a wave six um catalytic one it's often used in rvs they are pretty inexpensive and don't take much space the thing to be aware of there is because it's burning propane it does create moisture so if you were using that as a primary heat source over time i guarantee you you will have condensation and mold issues but because wood is such a dry heat Everything gets brittly dry in here in the winter. I keep water simmering on the top of the stove to help combat that. If I need to, for a few days or a week or whatever, run that one, it kind of just rehydrates all the wood in my house and is not an issue because my main heat is so dry. Right. That's a great segue because um, I got a question actually from one of my Tiny House Engage members, Jason, um, about condensation issues. Um, and it sounds like you have the opposite problem. Well, I've had both because I did not have a wood stove when I started here. I'm going to move my camera here for one second. My puppy dog is squirrel chasing, and I'm not sure if the camera can hear that. Come on, Burley boy. A little bit. <laughs> Come on, baby. The squirrels are fine. We, we can let them be in the tree. Save, uh, save that noise. But it's so fun. <laughs> He's fun, but he, he's kind of figured out that barking doesn't make them come back down, unfortunately, as much as he wishes it would. When I first had just a propane heater, I actually had a huge condensation issue. And that was even with the vented one. So before I had my catalytic one, and that is, of course, designed to help prevent the moisture buildup of burning propane. So possibly none of my condensation was actually caused by the burning propane but it was not removing moisture from the air like a wood stove does. And so just the fact that it's a small space and I'm a person who breathes and cooks and I don't actually use the shower in my house, so it wasn't even condensation from showering moisture, but partially because the temperature differential is so great here in the winter, it can easily be a 100 degree difference between inside and out. Um, 
I would just get water, you know, condensed all over my windows, running down, soaking into the wood window frames out for multiple inches. And even if I mopped up all the water, you know, with a rag on the windows several times a day, I was still getting, um, you know, mold then starting to grow in the wood and such. So that was a big issue. And is one of the reasons why after my first winter here, I decided a wood stove was worth the space that it takes, um, you know, in the tiny house. Because I thought about it when I first moved in and thought, you know, that's just going to take up too much space. And I, I don't think I'm going to go that route. But one winter with that kind of condensation problem was enough to convince me that the trade-off of making space for a wood stove was absolutely worth it. And again, I live in an area where I have excellent access to an unlimited virtually supply of dead firewood. So that made that an easy choice for me. But since installing the wood stove, I have not had any condensation issues. So I've I've dealt with both. <laughs> Got it. And so you don't have any kind of ventilation system other than the range hood that I can see behind you. No, well, there is actually a fan in the bathroom too. But again, because I don't use the shower in there, I, I don't typically use it. Um, no, if I was starting over, I would probably build in one of the the heat recovery exchange air systems. I forget what they're probably HRV. Called. Yeah, something like that to um, to circulate air. Since I have a wood stove now, which like wood stoves do, has a tendency to just make everything really hot. I get lots of ventilation because I just open windows. Um, <laughs> so that's been my solution. But I would recommend if you're building a tiny, and I, I guess there's there's probably different area uh, issues with being in very warm areas. I haven't dealt with them, so I can't speak to that. But at least if you're in a very cold area, being able to exchange air is important because in a small space, just your breathing alone, or if you have you and a dog breathing or anything like that does make more moisture than you would realize because that's just spread out much more if you're in a bigger space. Right. And those those HRVs can also help um, remove moisture from the air if you're in a really moist climate like the Pacific Northwest, for example, where <laughs> you, you might get cold and also moist all at the same time. And of course, you can add a, a dehumidifier. They generally there's some non-electric options, but generally they use electricity. So that wasn't something I wanted to run full time just because of its power draw on my little system. Um, in my area, it's generally so dry that in bigger houses, most people are running humidifiers, not dehumidifiers um, to keep the moisture level acceptable. But in a small space, that was still an issue, which did surprise me a little bit. Knowing I live in a dry area, I hadn't, I hadn't thought I would have a problem with condensation. And I still did. So that's something to be aware of. Good to know. Another question from the, the community is, um, do you have cold floors and how have you dealt with them? Um, no, I do not. And I am, I guess, like many women, I typically get cold feet and sometimes cold hands. That's the first thing that gets cold on me. So I have a few factors. Wood being a radiant heat makes everything around it hot. And that is another reason I love it compared to my vented heater that just blows warm air. And if you open the door and walk outside, all your cold air or warm air just kind of falls out and everything's cold again. Wood is a radiant heat. So when I touch my table, you know, the, the counter, whatever, the floor, it's warm because it's absorbed the heat. So that helps. Two, I have a cork floor on my, that's the, you know, the surface layer on my flooring. And I absolutely love it. Cork is much warmer than even hardwood to the touch. I was like wood floors, but now I've decided cork floors are by far my favorite. They just It's why people use it for handles on uh, trekking poles or fishing rods or something because it doesn't, it doesn't hold cold. I can't explain to you scientifically how that works, but it's warm to the, the touch or at least not cold to the touch. It just doesn't conduct cold through it very well and then most of the winter not right at the moment because we are having such a low snow year so far this year but most of the year my house is thoroughly skirted with snow because I get so much of it it just piles up and I use that as my skirting so the temperature under my house is at least a few degrees warmer than the actual outside temperature so that probably helps as well plus there is um, a lot of insulation in the floor I think it's R26 or something so cold floors have not been an issue for me, which is very nice because I do a lot of 
I don't, I'm not good at behaving myself in normal ways, like sitting in chairs like this. So I do a lot of work sitting on the floor or laying on the floor and things like that. So I spend a lot of time on my floor. <laughs> that's, that's great to know. I, I hadn't considered that as one of the benefits of a wood stove being that it, it radiates that heat out and actually warms up your floors. Um, cause my floors are chilly. You have to wear slippers in the house in the winter. Otherwise your feet definitely feel it. Yeah. And I run around barefoot or in stocking feet most of the time. And, and I still, people see me like in a tank top barefoot in the house when I'm showing it being minus 30 degrees outside. And I still get questions about, oh dear, are you warm enough? Wow. Like, well, yep, I am actually. <laughs> Can't you tell? What insulation was used in, in your house? Uh, mine was spray foam. Um, and that it's two by four all around too. It is two by four all around. Uh, I think the floor is actually two by six. Okay. Uh, so there's a little more on the floor and a little more on the roof. Uh, I think the walls are R21 with that two by four. And I've got cedar siding on the outside and, and pine paneling is the, the whitewash stuff you're looking at here. Right. Um, but it, uh, it is very well insulated. And so just when you get it warm, it, even when the wood stove's out cold, it's, it holds that heat for, quite a while even if you open the door and all the warm air falls out all the stuff is still warm so it goes right back to being warm that's awesome so you've been living tiny for six years or you're on your sixth year i'm curious i, I will be in in six days will be my sixth anniversary here cool so you moved in right as winter started Yes. Bold. I do not recommend going off grid <laughs> in a Wyoming winter right at the beginning of winter if you have options, but that is what I did and I survived and I'm still here. <laughs> nice. And you're you're much stronger for it, I'm sure. It doesn't give you as much space to work out some of the the quirks. Um, but that also means you work them out right away. And so then five, six years later you say, Well, I don't have any problems anymore. I got them figured out real quick because they were emergencies. <laughs> right. So so six years in, the the honeymoon period has certainly worn off. And, you know, mo I, I feel like I see tiny house dwellers who basically do maybe a year and then kind of it's not right for them. And that's most or many. And then there are other people who stick it out. So you've stuck it out. What do you what are some of the reasons? Like, what do you like about living tiny for this long and, and what keeps you doing it? Oh, for me, it's just really perfect. The only things I can say I've wanted more space for since living here would be a little bigger pantry because I do like to grow and then preserve, ferment, dehydrate, can my own food and, and food takes space to store. I do have a fairly big pantry, but and probably like six months of food in my house, but bigger would be great. Uh, and when you do have friends over and I've had overnight guests here and family stay over and such. It's a little snug if I had just a tiny bit of extra space where I could say, you know, at least there's a curtain over that spot. That's your private place. Go to sleep. You know, that would be kind of handy. But other than that, it's really just been a perfect space for me. Partially, that's because of my particular interests and hobbies. They don't tend to be indoor things. I like to garden. I like to hike and backpack. I like to do wildlife photography. Um and then my indoor hobbies are cooking and half of my house is a kitchen. So I do have room for that or video or photo editing or reading. And those basically involve just having a spot to sit down. So I don't have activities that need indoor space. Most of my hobbies involve being outdoors anyway. So having a, a space inside where I can keep me and my stuff, you know, dry and warm when I need to, and I can sleep and I can cook and I can eat, I can sit somewhere. is just perfect. And then it's freed me up. I don't spend... I don't spend much time at all cleaning uh, because there's just not much to clean. I do very little maintenance because everything is really well built and there's just really nothing, you know, that needs maintained now or is going to for a long time. There's a, I think a 50 year warranty on the color alone on the metal roof on this place. The metal roof should still be there in two, 300 years long after I'm not. So there's just, um, it doesn't, it doesn't require me to spend my lifetime and energy taking care of the house. I can just use it and then go do the things that I enjoy doing with my time. So that's a big as aspect for sure. Overall, I'd say it kind of comes down to freedom and all that. That gives me time freedom. It's also not a very expensive way to live. 
um, because I don't have ongoing utility bills. I don't have ongoing rent. I do, I do physical work for my landlords here, but I don't trade the money for being able to park here. Um, and so just financially, that's given me the flexibility to work less at other things I don't particularly enjoy. And again, have more free time to do the things I do care about, including time to make lots of videos for people who seem to enjoy them. And it's just really comfortable. I think I have always wanted a small space. I did grow up in a family with quite a few siblings. Four of us sisters shared a bedroom, which was quite spacious. It was probably more than four times the size of my entire house here. Um, so I can't claim, you know, complain that we were cramped. But I, even then I thought, can't we just build four walls in this room and each have like our own corner? It would just like my own space where when I put my stuff, no one touches it and moves it and messes it up and I can just have my own privacy. Um, and so I guess I feel like that's what I've got here now. I've got my own little corner where I can put my own stuff and it just, it's very relaxing for me in, in that aspect. And then just leaves me free to, to do the other things I care about in life. Nice. That's a great answer. I'm sold. <laughs> you should try it. <laughs> yeah. Build a tiny house or something. <laughs> well, I actually, my next question is, um, well, just to confirm, your, your house is a tumbleweed fencil, right? It was a or... tumbleweed cypress overlook would, would have been, and they don't offer the same model that that was offered when I had mine built. So it doesn't, if you're looking at their website, it's not going to line up exactly with anything on there. That was kind of the original design layout. And a lot of that had a lot of Jay Schaefer's touches in it, like these stairs you can see behind me and so on. And then I took that and did a lot of, at that time, they did a lot of customization options. I did a lot of writing and drawing back and forth with builders and said, well, but I want my kitchen to be bigger because I cook a lot. How about this? And they'd look at it and say, well, we can't put that right there because it conflicts with this. How about that? And so we did some adjusting. So even what I have was never a standard option. And even the standard option it was based on is no longer offered. But yes, that it started out as a 24 foot long tumbleweed cypress overlook model. Okay. So if you had to do it all over again and, you know, have a custom tiny house built for, for your current lifestyle, so same parking spot, I'm curious, are there things that you would drastically change about the design of the house or the systems? Um, nothing drastic. I would have, I had no idea how often I would be moving when I first moved in here and I haven't moved at all. So knowing that now, if I knew I wasn't going to move for at least six years, mine has a little bump out or bump in porch, which is nice to have a place to get out of the rain. I would have definitely pushed that out and had that as a, a full interior space and just done like an awning on the side that could collapse flat and latch down if you were going to go down the road or something like that. Because that would have been handy to have that space indoors. I might have done, I really like natural products, but my windows are all wood framed. And again, this is not an issue since I've had the wood stove. But if you do have any condensation, it generally occurs on your windows first. And if you have wood, that gives it a very absorbent material to soak into and then grow mold on. Whereas if you had a um, some kind of synthetic material around those windows that did not absorb water, it'd be easier to mop up just a puddle without without having it absorbed into the material. So again, it's no longer an issue, but if you have any condensation concerns, and especially are not going to be heating with wood, um, I probably would have done more of like a composite window frame instead of the natural wood. Other than that, I'm really content with pretty much everything I, I would have done a wood stove from day one but i've now fixed that um <laughs> and oh if you can see the kitchen cabinets behind me i started out with open cabinetry there was closed cupboard doors down here but there was open cabinetry up there just open shelving which i thought i liked the idea of that sounds modern and uh clean looking and such my experience was it's not actually, you can only put so many things on an open shelf before it starts to look really cluttery. And when you heat with wood, um, there's always going to be some dust. So every time you get a bowl down or something, you'd have to wipe out or dust out a little bit of dust that had filtered onto it and so on. So I found that to be a pain. And actually one of my lovely subscribers, um, when I described that, when I did a video on things that would change, 
is a retired cabinet maker and he and his wife uh were on a road trip and they they came here and actually built and installed um the upper cabinetry so now i have all closed doors so i can pack them full of stuff close the door it looks tidy and no dust gets in which is wonderful so that's something to think about i think a lot of people and that's kind of a personal preference thing some people really like the open shelving but if you're going to need to put a lot of stuff on your shelf just think about how cluttery that might look and that it might look cleaner to actually have it closed and be able to close the door on it. <laughs> so that's another thing I've changed since I moved in. Nice. Well, it sounds like the house has been pretty, pretty ideal for you. No major issues or no major changes. No, no, nothing major other than, I mean, I guess the wood stove would have been a, a more yeah. major change, but yeah, um, I changed that after, after one year and I've been very happy ever since. <laughs> nice. Well, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three resources that, that you found really helpful while you were building or, or kind of planning that you'd like to share? And I'll go first and say that you are a resource. Your YouTube channel is awesome, and you've <laughs> done such a great job of documenting your daily life and really showing the details so people can get an idea of, of how it all works. Well, that's perfect. That's what I try to do. Not because I think everyone will want their details to be like mine. I'm sure most people won't because other people have different interests and different hobbies and stuff. But at least I can throw out my experience and maybe it gives you something to think about and how it relates to your goals and what you care about. So that's good to hear. Um, who inspired me while I was? Or now, you know, doesn't have to be from six years ago. Because I was going to say, when I designed mine, it was actually a very, very short process from realizing I was about to be homeless at the start of a Wyoming winter to moving in here. So that was not, it was not something I had dreamed about for years, like many people. Um, it was a, a actually a somewhat quick solution to an immediate problem. So I can't say that there was a whole lot of other resources that I consulted during that other than my own life experiences with what I knew I wanted and, and did and cared about in life. Since then, I find, and there's just so many people that do amazing things that I, I'm interested in, in one aspect or another. Um, I do have a composting toilet, I would say Mr. Jenkins' Humanor Handbook, even though I didn't read it until I'd already been using a composting toilet for more than four years. Um, is super inspiring. And if I was, if I still had a flush toilet at the moment, his book would have made me want to get rid of it and start composting if I was not already doing so. Um, so I would say he is inspiring. And again, I care about that, not just because it's a toilet that works in my off-grid place, but I also am very interested in soil health and nutrition and the nutrition of the plants we're growing and the plants we're growing, turning into nutritious food and all of that. So that touches on many aspects that I'm, I'm somewhat passionate about in life. I really like a lot of, you know, some of the designs in my house were Jay Schaefer originals, and he is a, a lovely fellow who I have met. We actually got to share housing during one of the, the tiny house jamborees a few years back. So I got to know him just a little bit. And I like his uh, general approach to designing, I guess, because I do, I really value things being workable and practical, not just pretty. But I also like them to look nice. If I'm going to live here or look at anything all the time, I like to think that it's beautiful. And I think he does a really excellent job in combining usefulness and aesthetic beauty as well. And that might be one of the reasons so many people look at my house and say, oh, it's so cute. I really like it. Because there are a lot of tiny houses out there that are, are gorgeous inside and beautiful and practical and that people may be happily living in for more years than I've been here but some of them do look kind of like a funny shed on a trailer from the outside they don't really look like house and there's nothing wrong with that but I do think it looking beautiful does somewhat open more doors especially if you're looking for a, a somebody else's property to be able to park on in exchange for rent or work or something if those people are likely to think that your place is beautiful and not ugly um, no matter how much you like it or how practical it is that can open some more doors just in that and, and even reducing neighbor potential complaints about we don't want that ugly thing parked over there or whatever. So I think there are some uh, practical benefits to the, and, and of course, beauty is very subjective in the eye of the beholder, but I like my house and other people seem to. Um, so I guess that's two. You asked for three. Who else? 
I think all of the people who do things because they care about them or believe in them or think they're right, regardless of one of my friends said when we were chatting one time, he said, well, you just never waited for somebody to tell you something was a permissible option. And I guess I like everyone else who does that. And I get a whole lot of comments from folks much older than me on my channel on a regular basis saying, oh, I wish I had known that doing that was an option when I was younger. And I think, well, who told you it wasn't? Like, why are we looking for other people to say, you must behave in this way. This is acceptable. These are the only things you can do. You must have this career path and you must live in this kind of house and you must produce your food this way. You don't have to do it all like me. Go figure out a reason to do what you're doing and, and think about why you're doing it and care about it. And that's inspiring to me. And all the people that, that do things on in whatever area of life um, because of those reasons, not just because somebody told them it was a permissible option, I think are inspiring. Well, that's awesome. That's a great place to, to end it. Uh, Ariel McLaughlin, thanks so much for being a repeat guest on the show. Thank you so much to Ariel McLaughlin for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes and links from today's episode, including lots of gorgeous photos from Ariel's off-grid life in Wyoming in her tiny house at thetinyhouse.net slash 089. You'll also find links to all of Ariel's social profiles and her wonderful YouTube channel. That's thetinyhouse.net slash 089. I'm super excited to let you know that my brand new coloring book, Color Me Tiny, is finally available. Are you fascinated with the tiny lifestyle but not sure if living one is for you? Relax and let your tiny dreams run wild while you color 15 unique tiny homes inside and out. The Color Me Tiny coloring book includes a variety of tiny houses on wheels and the beautiful nature that surrounds them. The images all come from real photos that highlight the broad range of tiny house shapes and sizes. Each featured home includes an interior scene to show what it's like to live in that tiny house day after day. So whether you want to color a tiny Vardo on the beach, a cozy tiny house on wheels nestled in the snow, or several homes that feature their four-legged occupants, Color Me Tiny is for you. I'm offering a special discount, and that lasts for another few days. Uh, I want to make sure that this is something that you can give as a gift this holiday season to the tiny house lover in your life, or maybe it's just a gift for you. To learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash color. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash color, where you'll learn more about my new coloring book, Color Me Tiny. I can't wait for you to start getting creative with this and can't wait to see what you come up with.